In small towns, scary stories linger. Small towns are where people settle to raise families. Generations stay in one location, and places like that are the places where stories can take root, grow, bloom, take on a life all their own. After enough time goes by, it gets that no one quite remembers which parts of the stories are true and which parts got made up. Abilene, Vermont is one of these places. As long as there has been an Abilene, the Smith Family Cemetery has been there to tend the dead. There were lots of stories about the Smiths over the years. Unholy practices, devil worship, cannibalism, disposing of bodies for the government, scientific experiments on the dead, mass graves for the freed black men and women who had settled Abilene after the Civil War, a circle of gravestones where the devil danced. But through it all, no one in the history of the Smith family ever generated as many stories as Terry Smith. No two townspeople ever had the same details, but everyone had a story to tell. On his perch, overlooking the town, cloaked in darkness, obscured by crematorium smoke, Terry had become the boogeyman for Abilene. For the first time, a scary home companion will cut through all the conjecture and hearsay to give a definitive accounting of the history of Cemetery Smith. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact. Tall tales and terrifying truths. This is A Scary Home Companion. Terry Smith was born in 1986 in the modest town of Abilene, Vermont. The Smith family had deep roots in the community, tending the dead and running the Smith Cemetery for many generations. The family name was not without controversy, but that all depended on which side of the tracks you stood on. When little Terry came along, his parents were struggling, and they wasted no time teaching him the family business. It might seem odd for a child to be raised in such a place, among viewing rooms, morgues, and crematoriums, but it all seemed normal to Terry. It wasn't as gloomy a childhood as you might expect. Terry was a smart kid, adaptable, if a bit shy and withdrawn. The other local kids called him Cemetery Smith. They mocked his family. That didn't help his development or his self-esteem. But he thrived in the cemetery. 
By the age of six, he was assisting his parents with preparing corpses for burial. By the age of ten, he could manage every aspect of it himself. From digging graves with the backhoe and making headstones out of cement, to embalming, wound prep, and stage makeup for viewings. During this tender period, Terry found a substantial amount of drugs on one of the bodies he was preparing. He stashed them away and began to experiment. He tried this and that, but the blotter acid LSD struck a chord within him, one that opened up doors of perception he didn't know existed, allowing him to see and to hear things that other people couldn't. Perhaps it was something inside Terry's brain chemistry, or something more ethereal. Perhaps it was something in that blotter acid. Regardless, after that first trip, Terry was changed. When Terry was 14, the rest of his world changed. For reasons he couldn't grasp at the time, Terry's father shot his mother to death before turning the gun on himself. Terry came home from school and found the bodies. Instead of calling the police, he did what he had been raised to do. He cleaned his parents, closed their wounds, drained their fluids, embalmed them, dressed them in their Sunday finest, and then used the backhoe to dig two graves in the middle of the cemetery. He buried them all by himself, saying a few words over them. Please don't think that Terry wasn't emotionally wrought by this whole experience. He certainly was. But when death is your stock and trade, it's not quite so overwhelming. The bodies kept coming. Terry kept working. Remember I said he could do it all? He did it all. It took months before the police came to check on the house. And it wasn't because a crime had been reported. All the customers continued to be satisfied. It was the school system that had reported Terry as being truant. The only reason the cops ever found out about the murder-suicide is that Terry stopped going to school. The cops wanted to dig up the bodies for an autopsy. Terry freely gave them all the details that he knew at the time, but he refused to give them the location of the unmarked graves. They threatened him with charges, and then said they would put him into foster care. With a head full of acid and a backpack full of necessities, Terry went through the hidden back entrance of the cemetery and hit the road. He was 15. The year was 2001. He spent the first two weeks of his trip going south. He wasn't heading to New York City in particular, but he was in that general vicinity. And this is where he crossed paths with an utterly insane individual named Neil Wallace. This revered doctor of anthropology had once discovered a lost tribe in South America. Later, 
he eviscerated his entire family and declared himself a Herospex, able to foretell future events in the spilled entrails of his victims. Terry found himself in a life-or-death situation. A tiny slit had been opened in his belly by the Herospex, and a few inches of intestine had been oh so delicately pulled through the wound before being tied together in a knot with the guts of another young man. The Herospecs knew that any attempt to escape would result in both victims unspooling their own innards. He'd done it before. It always yielded special results. But the Herospecs hadn't come across anyone like Terry before. Having become so comfortable with death and human anatomy, Terry was able to stay calm, and his expert fingers were able to untie the blood-slick knots. The two boys were saved, and Terry, for the first time in his life, had a real friend. Graydon Jones, who, as you well know by this point, is a pretty fucking interesting dude in his own right. With the help of a DRO agent and a priest, the two boys recuperated enough to get back on the road. They delved into the secrets of Terry's family and took a walking tour of the Deep South. It was an eventful period for them both. The time came, eventually, when Terry and Graydon had to part ways. They both had family matters that needed attending. And Terry, he still needed some answers. So he reached out to that friendly DRO agent. Terry was surprised to learn that in the past, his dear departed father had also done some work for that shadowy government organization. When Terry finally returned to the Smith Cemetery, he was nearly 18 years old. He was the sole heir of the business and all the land. He was also gainfully employed by an agent named Bill Handel, disposing of dead bodies for deep red ops. front gates of the Smith Cemetery stayed chained, as they had been since the cops shut the place down. There was no reason to reopen to the public. Terry had all the work he could handle from one supplier. 
the Department of Restricted Operations. They might have had thousands of employees, but Terry only ever spoke with one of them, Bill Handel. Handel had also spoken with the sheriff and the local law enforcement, warning them away with the low tones and unspoken threats of a mafioso. The kid's with us now. You stay away from him. You stay away from his cemetery. Even with that, keeping a low profile was necessary. Terry's disappearance and the circumstances surrounding it had only stoked the flames of the stories about his family. The best thing he could do was to keep to himself, hunker down, avoid the town as much as possible, and let things blow over. Aside from the cops, very few people knew Terry had returned. Many might have thought it, whispered it, believed it, but they didn't really know. It was a lonely life for Terry, one of deep solitude. He thought of Graydon often. He missed his brother and friend, the only person he really considered to be family. He never really went into Abilene except to drive through it late at night on his way to Mill Valley, where he could anonymously do his shopping at the 24-hour Walmart. He started a few hobbies to keep himself occupied. Yoga, studying some Krav Maga videos, digging through the old files and family documents. But mostly, he worked. Terry hadn't been handed a free pass. This was a legit job, albeit off the books. Bill Handel had explained how Terry's father had occasionally done some freelance work for the DRO, using his crematorium and the land to permanently dispose of the troublesome corpses that cropped up in the course of their work. The job today would be the same, only with a bigger scope. The DRO were no longer using freelancers. This would be a centralized disposal site for the entire Northeast. The back gates were expanded and modernized to allow for refrigerated trucks to make drop-offs in the darkest hours. Sometimes a shipment would have three or four bodies. Sometimes a dozen. Some were shot, some were sick. Some were stuffed into bright yellow bags labeled as biohazardous. A great many of them had extreme head trauma. Terry processed them all, stuck them in the furnace, and blasted them into ashes. The average human body leaves behind roughly five pounds worth of cremains. On a plot of land the size of the Smith Cemetery, it was very easy to scatter the ashes, but with the volume of corpses constantly coming in, he needed to find a better long-term solution. Over time, he might wind up with thousands of pounds worth of cremains. Under the light of the full moon, 
Terry wandered his land and wound up at the old mass gravesite. He hadn't dropped any acid in quite a while, mostly because he was afraid of what he might see here. When those doors of perception kicked open, the sins of the past came back to haunt him, quite literally. And then there was the matter of the screaming man. In his day, Uriah Smith had been a wicked man. He prayed on the good Christians of the black community of Abilene, many of whom had escaped here from the horrors of the racist South. Uriah didn't wear a hood, but he still treated these people like animals. He stuffed all their dead into a mass grave so he could save on expenses and also keep the cemetery segregated. The local legend says that a spirit of vengeance came for Uriah Smith, burying him alive in his own cemetery, where he still screams to be let out. When Terry dropped acid, he could hear Uriah screaming. He could also see the spirits of the dead locals, many of whom were waiting by their graves through the night. He wasn't ready for that yet. Instead, he decided to start on the project. It was an idea that had been percolating for a few months now. It would solve his work problem, and maybe, just maybe, it could bring a little redemption to the Smith family name. The next day, Terry called the Abilene Black Historical Society and spoke to the curator, a man named Wendell Wyatt. They had met once before. Graydon had introduced them, and Wendell had explained what he knew about the history of the Smith Cemetery. Terry told Wendell about his project and asked for his assistance. He wanted to bring Wendell some of the old burial records to try and get a definitive list of names and dates for the people in that mass grave. You see, Terry realized the best way to get rid of all these ashes and cremains would be to mix them into cement and use that cement to make gravestones. What better use could there be for these stones than to dig up those poor souls from the mass grave and give them a proper burial. He could make coffins, he could make headstones, and with Wendell's help, he could put names and dates on them. These bodies had been in the earth for so long, there would be no way to definitively tell who was who. But he could make educated guesses if he had ages and death dates. After all, Terry had lived a life of death and was as intimate with its effects as any coroner. It would take time, years, and it would take work, but he knew he could do it. The project gave Terry a greater focus. He wasn't just going through the motions, he was doing 
something important. And it felt good. He hadn't dropped acid in a long time. And with his spirits so up, he felt that it was time to start mingling with the dead again. He sat on the roof at midnight, staring out over his cemetery as the LSD took hold. He saw the ghosts drifting through the crypts, splotches of spilled milk in the wind, and he heard the cries of the screaming man, Uriah Smith, calling out for help. Time passed, a lot of time, with very few notable events to mark its passage. The work continued. The project continued. Months rolled into years. Terry taught himself how to make LSD. Bill Handel brought the chemicals that he needed. There was a little trial and error at first, a couple of bum trips, a couple of very bad trips, but finally he got his formula dialed in, and now acid was an all-night, every-night affair, just like his younger days. The spirits of the cemetery were not as angry now, or as numerous, as the neat little rows of the reinterred got longer and longer. Terry's life was still mostly solitary. But there were a few bright spots. Bill came by to visit every once in a while. And a couple of times a month, Terry would go see Wendell at the Historical Society. Their conversations were always lively. Terry had learned a lot about the town. And the name of Graydon Jones tended to come up frequently. Not... Terry's friend, Graydon Jones, but one or two of his predecessors. It might not have been a friendship. It was more like friendship adjacent. But that was enough. He still thought of Graydon often, but at this point hadn't spoken to him in years. He had also taken to talking to Uriah Smith. One night, he had went out to the old man's burial site, not just tripping balls, but completely ass-over-tea-kettle drunk. He'd shouted at the screaming man to shut the fuck up. And it worked. For a few moments, it worked. He realized that whenever he talked to Uriah, the man would stop screaming. 
So some nights Terry took to laying on the grave, looking up at the sky, monologuing about nothing in particular, just to get some peace and quiet. And of course, there were the cats. There were just two at first, but others started to gradually join over the next few months. Terry didn't intentionally lure them in. He didn't leave out food and water at first. Not until he realized that these cats were going to be sticking around no matter what he did. He'd since grown to enjoy their company. Who knows what silent beacon called them up here in the first place, but once Terry opened his home to the felines, their ranks grew even further. These days, it was not unusual to have three or four dozen cats on the grounds, although most of them came and went as they pleased. In Abilene, the stories about Terry had reached a fever pitch. He was the local boogeyman at this point. School kids were afraid of him, and adults kept a wide berth just to be on the safe side. Maintaining such a low profile had been beneficial at first, but now his prolonged seclusion gave Terry an increasingly sinister status. What people don't know, they make up. So they made up a lot of new stories about Terry. Those stories whispered throughout the town, meeting and greeting and commingling and incorporating, weaving together into a tapestry that started to feel like truth to a lot of people. And Terry was fine with that. The stories served as a security system of sorts, making sure the vast majority of locals stayed well clear of his cemetery. Because of his line of work, his history, and his overall disposition, Terry needed the surety of solitude. Eventually, this put him at odds with Wendell Wyatt. Over the years, Wendell had put in a lot of work and research helping Terry. Not that he was doing it to help Terry... He was doing it because it was the right thing to do for his community and his people. But at this point, there were several dozen graves, people that had been removed from the mass dump site, given a proper resting place. The stones were uniform, each labeled neatly with a name and a death date etched by Terry himself. It looked so good. It felt so respectful. It was something that needed to be celebrated. Wendell wanted to inform all the local families to allow for graveside visitation. Terry did not want that. He didn't do the project for the families or the community. It was for the dead. It was to try and give some peace to the angry ghosts that had stalked this land for so long. And it was working. The project was doing just as he intended. Having a bunch of people from town traipsing through his graveyard 
would not bring him any greater measure of satisfaction. Wendell kept insisting. He kept pushing. Terry kept refusing. When Wendell finally reached the end of his ability to help, having found all of the information he could possibly find, the two men stopped talking entirely, until Terry was willing to open the gates and let the family see what he had done, their friendship was done. And it was around this same time that Terry fell out of contact with Bill Handel, through no fault of his own. The DRO agent had dropped by one night to discuss work and check in on the mental health of Terry, who he considered a valuable asset. During that visit, Bill received a phone call and raced away in a panic to try and save his husband. Since then, Terry hadn't seen Bill once and had only spoken to him over the phone twice. Bill Handel had become preoccupied with work and his home life, so he handed off Terry to his right hand, a woman called Lefty. Although Bill had only been friend-adjacent, the loss of his presence left Terry with no one else to talk to except the cats and Uriah. He filled the void with a new hobby, voyeurism. No, not like that. It started with an old junky telescope he found in the basement. He sat up on the roof one night, looking through the eyepiece at the town below, watching for any signs of life. Soon after, he bought a selection of much nicer telescopes, he bolted them to the side of the roof so he could sit and watch the town, keeping different scopes trained on the more interesting streets, houses, and parts of Abilene. It wasn't a weird sex thing. Terry didn't have any weird sex things. He was just a people watcher. He was just lonesome. He looked through windows from afar, seeing people acting naturally, as they only do when they know that nobody is watching. He saw parents and children, friends and neighbors and lovers. He saw night owls prowling, early birds exercising, teens sneaking out and sneaking back in again. Sometimes, he even saw stargazers on rooftops, looking right back at him. Over time, he started to remember everyone. He learned their faces and their secrets, but not their names. It made him feel less alone to know that he was surrounded by so much life. He saw bad things, too. Drugs, arguments, fights domestic violence. Sometimes he would phone in an anonymous tip to the local cops about what he had seen, but that happened rarely. The police were still wary of him, and he of they. This 
is where Terry first saw Gretchen Gorman. Not that he knew her name. He knew that her father put his hands on her. Not violently, at first. And not rapey, at first. But Terry could see the direction it was heading. He could also see the girl cutting herself when she was all alone. He wished he could help her. Not long after, he got the chance. While Terry was processing a new shipment from the DRO, Gretchen snuck out of her house with a couple of teenage boys, and they jumped the fence to explore the allegedly haunted Smith Cemetery. That was where the trouble started. Events that would upend his quiet, lonely existence and push him back into the big, ugly world. It was just what he needed. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. You can find the show on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Contact us directly at a scary home companion at gmail.com. Best of all, for you and for us, support us through the Patreon where you get tons of bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes analysis videos. You get extra bonuses as well. Starting next month, patrons get access to the new Scary Home Companion book called Bedtime Stories for Weird Kids. Free autographed copies for patrons. Check the Patreon for details. Join Kevin, Eric, Carol, Ashley, Monica, Andy, Catherine, Imani, and Sydney, plus the best horror fans in the world on Patreon. The episode was edited and produced by Jeff Davidson, who also gets a story by credit this time around. He and I have worked on these Buck Harp episodes together from the beginning. Music this episode provided by Lobo Loco with Tunnel to Wonderworld. Solar Flare with The Mask of Sanity. Filmy Ghost with Ignatius Blackward. And Mons Jacet with Whiskey Acid.